Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. What does the Catholic Church teach about homosexuality? Before I begin to address or answer this question, I want to start with a preface. I recognize that this particular question is both emotionally and politically charged. Many people are affected by both this answer and how we understand homosexuality in our general culture. And for that reason, I do not intend to make a moral claim on its own, but more to address and explain, as well as present, what the Catholic Church teaches. What are the authentic Church teachings? And there's a couple reasons why I start from this point, and I make a point that this is all I'm going to talk about. The main reason is the media and the culture at large has painted a picture of the Catholic Church in this very specific way. And this specific way has led to a specific way of seeing the Church's teachings, which largely are inaccurate. And so the goal of this podcast is to bring some more accuracy and clarity. For those of you who have people in your family who have homosexual tendencies or define themselves as gay or lesbian, or for those of you who may be listening who define yourself in this way, this is not meant to be a challenge to you or a or judgment upon your, you, but a way to, for you to understand where the church comes from. So the main point to start out with, the kind of foundational point, is that the church is developed and all the theology develops around one central principle. We are trying to understand God's ways. We are trying to know what God wants from us and what his teachings are and to follow his moral imperatives. What does God want from his people? And in that way, we have scripture as the core of, or one of the main cores of all of our foundation for doctrines and teachings. I get it. Scripture is complicated. And scripture is written over a huge period of time in which things have changed, things have updated, whatever you wish to call it. But even if we see it in that perspective, it means that the scripture largely has no particular basis to it. That is not our perspective. If there are moral laws that do not have uh, a clear way of updating or that they have a strong rational basis behind them, we cannot dismiss them. For instance, if we hear things like in the book of Leviticus, where it reads, a man shall not lie with another man as with a woman, and similarly in the book of Romans, where he states, their females exchanged natural relationships for unnatural, and the males likewise gave up natural relations with females and turned with lust for one another, these two passages start to make a statement or a claim that homosexual relationships are wrong. And it's from that context that we start to form an entire moral point or moral viewpoint to address the issue of homosexuality. Even though the scripture seems to be clear it needs some finessing or some nuance or some exploration to really get at the full moral teaching of the Catholic Church or the full perspective of the Catholic Church. One of the things that always surprised me when it comes to the Catholic Church and homosexuality is that out of the entirety of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catechism is the summary of all the Christian doctrines. It is the summary of everything the Church teaches. And in this 2,000-page document, there is only three paragraphs on homosexuality. And because it is so rarely spoken about, I want to quote them in their entirety. 
So these three paragraphs on homosexuality fall into the general chapter that's on the, the sixth commandment, which is, thou shalt not commit adultery. In this particular chapter, they're talking about sexual ethics, marriage, anything that goes with those two main topics. And yet, in the midst of this, there are three paragraphs. Three paragraphs that I'm going to quote in their entirety. Paragraph 2357. Homosexuality refers to relations between men or between women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction towards persons of the same sex. It has taken a great variety of forms through the centuries and in different cultures. Its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained, basing itself on sacred scripture, which presents homosexual acts as acts of grave depravity, tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine effective and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. Paragraph 2358. The number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial. They may be accepted with sorry, they must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and, if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. Paragraph twenty three fifty nine. Homosexual persons are called to chastity. By the virtues of self-mastery, they teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship. By prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. There's a lot there. Let me unpack this and use these three paragraphs as a way to explain the church's position, as well as to bring nuances to some of this. In the first paragraph, 2357, there's a few things worth noting, and a question that I always like people to, to ponder for a moment. What does this paragraph say, and what does it not say? One of the most important points that it says is that we don't know the origins of homosexuality and homosexual tendencies. And frankly, I don't want to know the origins. When we know the origins of something, we have the ability now to judge it, or condemn it, or to try and change it, or correct it, whatever that might be. Without knowing the origins, we can't really change it. We kind of are just stuck there to accept it. Which, in some ways, that can be of great benefit. If we found out that homosexuality was predominantly or exclusively biological, then it becomes a genetic issue, and it has a whole series of issues that go with that. If we found it to be more nurture-based or psychological, then we can easily treat it as a psychological disorder, and therefore treat it as a disorder. Both of these seem destructive to those who deal with homosexual tendencies. Therefore, leaving the origin largely unexplained gives us the freedom to recognize the person, which is one of the beauties of that first paragraph. The second thing that's worth noting is it said that homosexuality, as far as a moral stance or ethical stance, is largely, largely based on sacred scripture. That sacred scripture notices one important thing and that is homosexual acts. And that is really important for right now, that I am distinguishing and making a sharp distinction between homosexual persons and homosexual acts. Any kind of example I give in this will seem ridiculous or even hurtful in many ways, 
But the person is a person of their own accord. Every person, regardless of what they may experience or what they have done, is made in the image and likeness of God. Every single person is endowed with a level of dignity and therefore are dual level of respect because they have that dignity. This first paragraph, 2359, is recognizing that central reality. And the next two follow suit. Every person has an intrinsic dignity. Every person is called to Christian perfection. Every person should be devoid of any kind of unjust discrimination and accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. It doesn't matter who they are. Everyone is in that place. Now, actions are very different. Actions are what someone does. If we accepted everyone's actions as good, then we have to accept the murderer's action as good. We also have to accept a rapist's actions as good. We also have to accept a liar's actions as good. Now, most of us would find all three of those situations abhorrent, if not troubling, to an extent. And for this reason, we need to separate strongly a person's acts from the person themselves. A person may act strangely or even problematically in one situation and be good and fine in another. For instance, someone who lied in one situation does not automatically become a liar. If we judge them that way, we are judging them harshly. This is where things get really complicated. Largely in our society, whenever someone commits a crime, especially one that is punishable by law, we like to collapse that person to the crime they committed. That person is a murderer. That person is a rapist. That person is a thief. As opposed to recognizing the central reality that that is a person who murdered, a person who stole, a person who raped. By recognizing the dignity of the person, we are also calling that person to something greater and allowing us to experience the reality of who that person is. Although this seems like a, a, a false analogy, the same thing works in this situation. Regardless of what tendencies a person may have, they are all given the same dignity and respect as any other person. And that's where the starting point is for this conversation on homosexuality. Every person, regardless of their sexual tendencies, is a person with the same dignity as anyone else. The final thing that's said in paragraph 2357 is something about the homosexual acts themselves. What sacred scripture says about homosexuality is that it is a great depravity. It is not in accord with the complementarity of the sexes, and it does not produce life. So what that means, especially as it uses the term natural law, is that our sexual organs, our genitalia, are meant for a specific purpose. This is the core of natural law. The core of natural law is that all things in nature are ordered towards a certain end. Let me give you an example. Our stomachs are used for processing food and absorbing nutrition. Technically, it's the small intestine, but the entire digestive system is meant for that purpose. Now, I can use my digestive system for its proper end, which is to gain myself nutrition and eat good, nutritious foods that nourish me and strengthen me and give me the vitality I need to live. Conversely, I can eat junk food, things that cause my body to ache, things that don't make me feel well, things that make me sluggish, or things that don't lead to better health. If I choose to do that and eat foods that are not good for me, I am treating my digestive system in an improper way, or not letting it be ordered towards its proper end, which is the good of me, that I can benefit from it, become healthy due to it. That's the same concept that's employed here. That 
Our sexual organs are meant for a specific end. They are meant for the procreation of children. Regardless of how many people want to dismiss this or even counter it, that is the reality. Our sexual organs are not meant for pleasure. They are meant for procreation. The pleasure side of it makes us actually want to do it. Let's be blunt. That is the real reason. And so we can treat our sexual organs properly or improperly. We can order them towards the natural end of procreation, or we can order them against it. The one challenge to that that's worth noting, because it is important, and it is found in the Church's sexual ethics, is that in the context of marriage, sexuality and our sexual organs are ordered towards two ends. The two ends are procreation, but also the good of the spouses. This creates a new distinction that is worth noting. As I mentioned at the beginning, these paragraphs on homosexuality are found in the context of sexual ethics and the context of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. In that way, the entirety of this chapter focuses on one central reality. Sexuality and all sexual acts are ordered towards marriage. Marriage is the proper expression of all sexual behavior. That includes things like masturbation and um, also sexual behavior. All of these things are seen only in the context of their proper expression, which is the union of the spouses for the procreation of offspring and the good of the spouses themselves. In this way, the right ordering of our genitalia or our sexual passions is always in light of that marital act or the marital bond or the sharing of spouses, not to our own desires, ends, or what we may want them to be for. And that's why it's so critical to see all this come together. The natural law states that our genitalia are meant for a specific end. That end makes most sense in the context of marriage. And therefore, all sexual ethics is derived from what should happen in marriage, which is marriage tends towards two ends, the procreation of offspring and the good of the spouses. Therefore, the pleasure derived from sexual acts is really meant for the good of the spouses to unite themselves and to see their love come to fruition, which then produces children and shows the good through that. In this way, those who have committed homosexual acts cannot tend towards the procreation of offspring. They are doing something with their genitalia that does not allow them to reach their full potential in the context of natural law. That is why this particular paragraph focuses on natural law and the complementarity of sexual behavior, as well as the point that sexual acts bring life. Those three come together in this paragraph. Okay, I've spoken a lot about sexual ethics, as well as the genesis and how the church sees homosexual acts. What I want to do now is deviate slightly from that and talk about persons, because paragraph 2358 focuses a lot on the person and a totally new view on the issue of homosexuality compared to paragraph 2358. In this paragraph, it focuses strongly on persons, people, people who experience homosexual tendencies, not just actions. And in this case, the paragraph makes it very clear that those who experience homosexual tendencies, they must, and the word must is strong here, be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. That means that we cannot discriminate, we also can't like force them to behave a certain way, or create this kind of mentality in which they are completely other. A true recognition of this paragraph would mean that 
especially from my perspective as someone who's a Catholic priest and a pastor of people, they need to be accepted in our community as full members of the community. On a personal note, I noticed that in a lot of places, Catholic churches are trying to make almost like support groups for those who experience homosexual tendencies. This makes me slightly sad because it makes them different from the rest of the community, when really, I would love to use the word us and bring the whole community together to recognize the plethora of ways that people experience sexuality and also sexual intimacy in proper ways, but also that we have a whole host of different kinds of people that come together to celebrate as one, not to be broken off into different groups because of homosexual desires or other kinds of desires or other kind of groups, but to become totally one. This takes some time. Another line in here that probably caught some people off guard and is worth noting is that it said, every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. I don't think that when the Catechism was written that the Church Fathers thought that we would be dealing with the issue of same-sex marriage. And for a lot of people in our modern society, the issue of same-sex marriage, or the lack of it, is seen in the matters of justice, that everyone has a right to marriage. This idea of a right to marriage is something that's worth noting and also something worth exploring. What does it mean that people have a right to marry? Who gives the right? Where does it come from? We've been using the idea of rights and the idea that everyone has a right for a very long time without much foundation to it. The way our society views this right is that people have a right to have the society ratify their love and support them in their union of two people. Well, what is the right? What are we saying that is unalienable or that everyone has the right to? That is the ultimate question. I'm not going to answer that here because that is a moral question and a more complicated social question. The reality from the Catholic Church's perspective is that marriage is meant between a man and a woman, and therefore the only people who have a right to marry is, is that couple who is fully prepared and ready to engage in what is demanded of them through the sacrament of marriage, the union of a man and wife, or a husband and wife, for the sake of children and the good of each other. The other thing worth noting in paragraph 2358 is that the Church recognizes that those who experience homosexual tendencies feel a great burden by it, or that there's a challenge to it, or that it's hard on them. And that part of that is to recognize the difficulties of life and to unite that with the sacrifice of our Lord as a way for these people to grow in holiness. It's not as though this is a horrible thing to which we need to root out, but as almost a God-given gift in some ways, in which these people are now called to a new level of holiness, or are able to experience God in a new and profound way because of what they are experiencing. Which then leads to paragraph 2359, which then causes probably some of the most problems. Homosexual persons are called to chastity. This is really not a surprise for those who have read this chunk of the Catechism. The Catechism is very clear, and the Church is even more clear on this. Everyone is called to chastity. It is not as though we are imposing a strict norm upon just those who experience tendencies different than heterosexual. This is for everyone. There is no context in which a person is not called to chastity. Even those who are in the married state, or who are married, whatever you wish to call it, are called to chastity, to the right ordering of their sexual passions and the right ordering of their sexual organs, their genitalia. Everyone is called to chastity. This is not just a strict burden posed on those who have homosexual tendencies. It is something 
that is given to all, something that's expected of all. And the next piece of it, which then leads to more issues and, issue, and complications, is that those who experience homosexual tendencies are given the freedom to get support and from support from disinterested friendship, which means that it doesn't lead to sexual behavior, and also they are to approach Christian perfection, which leads very closely to what Pope Francis said on his plane ride a little while ago, who, with the common phrase, who am I to judge? The fuller context is, he said, if they live good Christian lives, who am I to judge? He's making the point that since everyone is called to know God and everyone is called to chastity, if people are living good Christian lives, who cares what their tendencies are or what they may experience or have done? Everyone has the call to live a life close to God, to ask for repentance when things don't go the way anticipated, and to constantly strive for holiness. So in the context of those three paragraphs, I've addressed a lot of things, namely the difference between person and acts, the issue of natural law theory, why homosexual acts are considered immoral. Now what I want to do is take a different spin for a moment and address some of the common critiques that people make against the Catholic Church's stance on homosexuality and kind of be able to address those and to bring light to them. The first one is, it doesn't seem fair that people with homosexual tendencies are called to chastity. I just answered this a moment ago. It's not just them, it's everyone. Everyone is called to chastity. So if you think that being called to chastity is unfair, that's a totally different issue. And that then means that the natural ordering of our desires that God intends from us is unfair. Play with that one. Number two, it doesn't seem fair that people with homosexual tendencies cannot be married. This argument shows a lack of understanding the Catholic Church's perspective on marriage, that marriage has two principal ends, the procreation of children and the good of the spouses. I would argue that people who are in homosexual relationships of some kind can um, tend towards the good of each other, which is great. We all should, to some extent, help foster friendship, help support each other, help work together to support one another. That's a great thing. But they can't have children of their own. They can adopt, but that's the closest they can get to. One of the things that surprises me about this particular counter-argument or critique is that there's lots of people in our society that cannot get married, and yet we don't talk about them. People who are elderly sometimes are prevented from getting married because of memory loss issues or their state in life. Some people who experience great defects, such as birth defects or mental impairment or even physical impairment, are prevented from getting married from the perspective that they can't give consent. And also, if we're not careful and we keep going with this tendency, does that mean that whoever wants to marry whatever can? And if you think I'm being crazy, keep in mind that in the United States in the last decade, a woman has married a church, a woman has married a train station. Yes, these things actually did happen. And in a more poignant and uh, critical way, there's a group of people in the United States called the National Association for Man-Boy Love that are trying to push for the marrying age to be reduced down to the age of eight. Are we going to say that those who wish to be married to prepubescence should be allowed to? Is their right fundamentally um, taken away from them because they cannot marry as they wish? We have not addressed this question as a society in a way that will help answer them. What do we mean by marriage? What are the boundaries of marriage? And 
How are we going to address that on a social perspective? That's really what's at the core of the entirety of this debate and something that needs some resolution. It seems like homosexual people are required to live a solitary and lonely life. I feel like this misrepresents everything. Marriage is not the only way to live happy lives. People can live good, happy lives and be single or be in groups of friendships like living in a house together. We've put a lot of emphasis societally on marriage, as though the only way to be happy is to be married. And frankly, there are a lot of unhappy people that are married. There's a lot of broken relationships caused by marriage. There's a lot of family problems caused by marriage. Marriage is not the end-all be-all of happiness. We keep looking at like Disney movies and chick flicks as though once I'm married, I'll wander off into the distance and live in this wonderful castle where everything will be great. No, marriage is a struggle. Marriage takes some work. Marriage is tough. And so even if we see marriage in such a beautiful way, it still comes with its great challenges. But single life does not mean that we will be solitary and lonely. Solitary and lonely is a personal choice in some ways. It's a choice to say, I want to be alone, or I don't want to be around people. And lonely means I am called to go find more people and to engage with more people. I don't see why people who are not married can't live good, full, fulfilling lives that are productive and useful and make them happy and feel empowered. And there's ways to show our love and care for one another that doesn't involve sexuality. It just involves being human, being real. The fourth one is tied more strongly to the Catholic Church, and that is, this stance doesn't seem welcoming. This idea became the core message behind Father James Martin's book, Building Bridges, in which he tries to build a bridge between the LGBTQ community and the Catholic Church and find ways to bring them in. From my perspective, I don't understand this. The only thing that's unwelcoming is saying, you can't do this. And the Catholic Church will say there's a whole mess of things people can't do. You can't be polytheistic. You have to live a life of prayer and take away other pleasures you may have wanted. You have to go to Mass on Sunday. You have to recognize that we're not great people all the time and we've failed. We've caused sins. Then there's the whole seven deadly things things where we're trying to go after pride and gluttony and envy and avarice and all these different things. There is a huge number of restrictions that pose just by trying to follow God, and that's just part of it. So to say, because one way is not accepted, that we're not becoming welcoming, I don't know if we've ever meant to be welcoming in some ways. We've meant to call people to holiness and to help them engage with the Christian life. So that being said, there are ways we can be very unwelcoming and very in ways we can be very welcoming. Very unwelcoming would be to chastise and cast out and to ridicule, which I, which makes us all hypocrites, because in no way can we do that to anyone. The other side of it is to say, okay, we recognize that people have homosexual tendencies. We want you here. We're going to help support you in any way we can, but we're not going to change the moral stance on this, but help you live a good, fulfilling life, regardless of what your tendencies might be. And that kind of evens the playing field because, frankly, in the Catholic Church, people have tendencies towards lust and commit adultery or rape. People have tendencies towards greed and steal and cheat and lie. People have tendencies towards all these different things. We even have tendencies to not want to follow God or that I just want to sit back and watch TV all day. We all have different kinds of tendencies. 
to picture one and focus on it exclusively causes problems. But to really open it up and recognize we're all on this journey together, trying to figure out what to do with these things, that gives us all kind of a level playing field. We're all pretty much the same. And so as you grapple with what I've said and what I have interpreted from the Catholic Church and trying to present this position in an appropriate and helpful manner, I do want you to reflect on these things. What does it mean? What is the core of all this? Why does it matter? Because ultimately, answers to these questions largely affect the people we know, the people we care about, and how we relate to one another. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 